Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Excellent. Would you find a seat, please, real quickly? And we're going to continue here. Our guest today is... um, Actually, family, I, I would definitely say that. Uh, Steve Gill and Kisa came to us right out of college. Some of you might be aware that I was the first youth pastor here years back. Uh, Steve and Kisa were the first children's pastors here, coming straight out of college. Um, they served for a number of years. Uh, Steve's character and his heart and his devotion to the church is just so profound. When Steve, after serving here for, I think it was like 10 years, um, felt called to move on, the way he handled his departure, he was the first staff person to depart from the church, and um, his level of character and communication was so spot on and so considerate of the church that we literally, he and I actually, some of you might recall, most of you wouldn't, but years back, we literally had a Sunday morning service that Steve and I sat together and were interviewed by Rick Camiso, and the title of the service was How You Leave a Church. Um, he just did it that fantastically. Since then, he has led a church up in the Flint area. He has um, founded and pioneered and planted a church in Florida over the last nine years here of time. They've served on the missions field, and they're about to serve on the mission field again in Costa Rica with some other good friends of ours. Um, Steve also is an excellent athlete. Uh, we have many stories that he and I can both share. He will not share any of those uh, at all under pain of death. Um, I will share one only, and that is this. He uh, is a great athlete. He played basketball in college, and we used to, in the student center, the gym area, we used to have some pickup games back there in the day. I was good at football, good at volleyball. <clears throat> basketball, I was good defense, <clears throat> lousy shooting. Steve would always drive for the net Drove me nuts because I couldn't stop him. He kept driving for the net, constantly was making the the scores and all. Um, I had the ball one time. I shot for it, missed. He took the rebound and started racing for the other goal. And I'm trailing behind him, and there was only one way to stop him. And so I tackled him, full-out tackled him. And we had these pads on the on the goalpost at that point. He like he bounced off the goalpost, I think, and we both bounced up laughing because our relationship was such that he knew that was my style of play. Uh, he's been a good friend, and as I said, a, a fantastic person in ministry, and we're very pleased to have him here this morning. Would you please warmly welcome Steve Gill? <laughs> that is a true story, probably one of many tackling stories if I recall. Hey, it is great to be here. Um, if you were the first youth pastor and I was the first children's pastor, that means we're both old. That's what that literally means. It's good to come back. Uh, Keith and I first got our bearings in ministry, learned a lot from Pastor Leo and Pastor Randy, and it just wasn't church to us. It was in his family, and so it's, it's, it's cool to be released into ministry to come back and 
And it really is key because most churches, most Christians leave churches poorly. And the joy to come back here and not have to look over my shoulder and laugh with people and tell stories and feel a part of the family is an amazing thing. And um, just thank you, Randy, for the opportunity. Uh, currently, um, my wife and I are making our way back to the mission field, and I'll share a part of that. And so that means just a, a few years ago, because we've been actually on the mission field before, uh, I was a middle-aged 40-year-old man. I won't indicate how old I am now, but I'm older. And I had to learn a second language. I had to learn Spanish in order to engage in ministry. And so one of the first words, even if you took it in high school or college, is a simple word that I'll share with you today. It's ahora. Can you say that with me, please? All right. It means now, right? And when you get to go to the grocery store, ahora, I need a taco from Taco Bell, ahora, or maybe you don't say it that way. Uh, clean your room, ahora, all right? So I'm just, it's a simple, basic Spanish word. But as I moved into Costa Rican culture and I hung out with my Tico brothers and sisters, and that's what they call Costa Ricans as Ticos, I began to find out there was a variation of ahora, which is ahorita. All right. Anytime in Costa Rican culture you want to emphasize something a little bit more, there's an ito or an ita on it. Ahorita, right? And so if something was to be done now, but like super now, super in the moment, get it done, someone would say, ahorita. I need it done, ahorita. Clean your room, ahorita, right? Makes sense. But I also began to find out that as I hung out in Costa Rican culture that ahorita actually means more than just right now. It means right now in three seconds. It means right now in three minutes. It means right now in three days. It means right now in three weeks. Are you following me? And then sometimes it would actually be a filler word. Someone would just say ahorita just to kind of please you. And they really didn't intend to when they say that word actually put some action behind it. Words without actions. I remember the first time that I heard that in culture, and I'm looking as a gringo in a different culture, and gringo is an affectionate word in Costa Rica, so I'm not being offensive, okay? And i addressing my brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, Ticos, and I said, you, you, you guys can't do that in culture. You can't say one thing and mean another. And then, you know, I sometimes struggle with filters. As soon as the words came out of my mouth, I began to think, it's like, that's not just a Costa Rican thing. That's a human thing. It doesn't matter the color of your skin or your ethnicity. It doesn't matter the languages you can speak or can't speak. It doesn't matter who raised you or didn't raise you. There is, we don't deliver. There are moments in our lives where we'll say something, and it might be very spiritual, but all we intend to do with it is words, no actions. And we, as a human race, well, look someone square in the eye when it comes to religious connotations, serving, or our word, and we will say, ahorita, and we don't mean to deliver anything behind those words. It's empty. I want to jump into a passage today, and I want to speak about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We're going to jump into the Old Testament, but I want to connect it to Jesus, right? And Jesus was the God-man. As you open up the Gospels, 100% divine, 100% human full of grace, full of truth, came to this world to not start a religion, but to connect us in relationship with God that we broke, not he broke. And in that process, he, he said these two words over and over again. He said, follow me. Would you say those two words with me? Follow me. Jesus is known for that. And people in single digits and in dozens and in hundreds and in thousands and later by millions followed Jesus. 
And here's how I know that Jesus made a difference and the church made a difference. Here we are today, 2023, August, right? And we're still at this point in this place. We're curious, we're wondering, we're searching, we're digging, we're getting deeper. They made such a profound difference. Jesus made just such a profound difference that we're here thinking and processing about him today. What it means to be a follower of Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, you respond to his calling. As you open up the scriptures, there's many things that describe a follower of Jesus. Characteristics, lifestyles, the way that we live, the way that we give. I want to enumerate one today. One. And it simply is this, as followers of Jesus, part of our calling is this, I'm called to live justly. Now I'm passionate about this because God has ebbed us in and out of this over years on the mission field. We had a predominantly white church in Southwest Florida that was impacting a predominantly Hispanic community. And so when I talk about justice, I think I've got some skin in the game here. I love this. I bleed this. I die for this. It's part of the way that God's wired me. And so I just want to challenge you that as followers of Jesus, regardless of your background, you're called to live justly. Now, here's a couple of things that I know. There are some tensions in this world, maybe in this room, maybe in your minds and your hearts when it comes to the word justice. Number one is this. The first tension is a gap. I believe there's a lot of well-intentioned Christians and well-intentioned churches that believe in caring for those who are experienced injustice and caring for those who are marginalized and caring for those who are oppressed. We believe it's biblical. We believe it's Jesus-centered. But there's a gap that exists between our belief and our actions, a belief in our finances, a belief in our time. And we live a life of belief, but it's empty words. And I would say that and equate that with ahorita, right? We mean it, but we don't do anything about it. So that's a tension that exists in our world. The second tension I want to address today simply is this, is that when I mention the words justice, it's been abused and misaligned and trashed and miscommunicated and thrown under the bus within and outside of the Christian community. And so I want to clearly state my intentions today. My intentions with this idea of living justly is not to water down the gospel. I'm a Jesus follower, all right? I'm not going to water down the gospel. However, we need to understand that Jesus was often uh, ostracized and penalized, you know, and looked down upon because he ministered to those that were the most marginalized, or as we will sing later, the least of these. So I'm not here to water things down, but Jesus was in the middle of it, and shouldn't we be in the middle of it, right? I'm not here to prop up a, a referendum or a politician or a candidate or a policy, another conversation for another day. That's not my job in this role today, right? However, I do want to say this, that in the first century, it was the Christians, Jesus' followers, that regardless of the emperor or the policy or the referendum, it was Jesus' followers who were making a difference for the marginalized. It was the Jesus' followers who were going out to the trash heap and picking up the babies that were thrown away. That's history. It was the Jesus followers who were actually reaching out to the leper community and bringing healing to them. It wasn't the government, it wasn't referendum, and it wasn't policy. So clearly, if they did it and turned the world upside down, here's my question, shouldn't we? If you're with me so far, just say yeah, all right? Okay, all right, all right. Yeah, that was a good one, all right, all right. So let's do this today. Here, here's a statement that I wanna share with you that I hope goes home with you. As a follower of Jesus, Righteous behavior and the right treatment of others matters. 
It's funny that sometimes as Christians we become either or, and I believe that Scripture is full of a lot of ands. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He was not halvesies and one or the other. He didn't orientate just towards justice or just towards truth or just towards grace. Jesus was full of grace and full of forgiveness and full of truth and full of justice, a perfect balance. The challenge is, is we gravitate towards one or the other. We tend to be more gracey or more truthy. But we're called to be both, to love people, to speak truth. I want to go to a book today, the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. If you want to go there, open up your Bibles, take some notes today. I encourage it before we actually get there. Here's some context. Uh, the people of God, the Israelites in Judah, were once again throwing away their relationship with God, forgetting the miracles of God, and doing their own thing. Vine's uh, Dictionary says this about the people of God in the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, it says, The Lord had entered into a covenant relationship with the people of Judah, but they had rebelled like spoiled children. And maybe you know some Christians that have been like that. And again, I'm not being condescending. I'm just direct. Maybe there's been moments in your life where you have been that way in your relationship with God. And God chooses Isaiah, speaks through Isaiah to recalibrate God's people. Because God's people at that particular point in history were religious. It was all a head game. It was all up here. The heart was lacking. It was all up here. The actions were lacking. They were in an arita kind of moment. They were saying things, going through the motions, but it was making no difference. As I was reading some of Isaiah's stuff and some commentaries, I, I kind of took it, I homogenized it, put it in my own modern context. And this is Steve Gill speaking, but... Maybe if God were to speak in this context today, he would say this to the people of Israel, maybe some of us. He says, your churchy life and your worship, they are at times empty, so I therefore reject them. That's what God was essentially saying to the people of Israel. I don't need head service or lip service. I need heart. I need actions. And on top of that, the icing on the cake, the context of this particular passage is not only were they just being religious, but they were marginalizing their own people, marginalizing the marginalized. They were perpetrating injustice, if you look at history, on their own people. And out of that context, God reorientates his people, speaks through Isaiah. And here's a passage that reverberates throughout Scripture. You may have heard it before. Isaiah 1.17. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Again, whether you've got church or unchurched experience, that's probably a verse or a similar verse that you've heard like that before. Even though Isaiah drops us here with God's people, this was being said long before Isaiah. Even though Isaiah drops us here with God's people, it was song, said long after uh, Isaiah's time in history. In fact, you come along to the New Testament, Paul goes to town on this. You come to the life of Jesus. Jesus speaks this, lives this, does this all over the Gospels. I wrote in my notes in this way, there is a echo of a calling for all followers of Jesus to stand in the gap against injustice and to make a difference. So what does that look like in the context of Isaiah 117? First four words, learn to do what? Learn to do, help me out. Right. If you're newer to church today and you're wondering about Jesus or you're seeking Jesus or you wonder about those Christian people, 
What do they believe? I'll offer it up. We believe that Jesus is the objective standard of truth. What is right? We live in a world and we know that our own natural disposition of our heart is my truth, my feelings, my way, and whatever I determine is what truth is. And I know that's pushback and I say it with kindness, but followers of Jesus, we believe that we are flawed, that we are broken, and my feelings and my truth and my orientation are are not as accurate as the objective truth found in Jesus, the God-man. So we reorientate our entire life around that, our marriages around that, our money around that, how we raise our kids. We're not perfect. We screw that up. But he is our anchor. He is our compass. And Isaiah says, learn to do right. But here's the interesting thing. He says, learn. Rightness is not something that happens like that, is it? I mean, if you're a parent, you know that to be true. If you're working in corporate America, you know that to be true. There's certain things you've got to learn. You've got to build some skills. Righteousness, the righteousness that is found in Christ, that is given to us, where he forgives us of our sin. Yeah, it's a free gift that we accept, but we've got to learn to walk those steps of righteousness and growing in Christ. We're going to succeed and we're going to fail. So rightness is a learn thing. It's an experiential thing. It's something I do over and over again. Learn to do right. And there's more in verse 17. And out of that... Seek, what is that word? Justice. Tell me out again. Seek justice. The reason why justice is misaligned in our world today is many times it's disconnected from the righteousness of God. And anytime justice in any shape or form is disconnected from the righteousness of God, it becomes abused and misaligned and marginalized and twisted and tweaked and all over the place. I put a statement to certify that or communicate that today. Righteousness and justice in God's economy are always linked together. Always. And when you pull those two apart, it's a mess. And we live in a world where justice is a mess. We live in a world where justice is a mess, where we have abused it, misaligned it. And even Christians do this. So so let me give you two pictures of two, in my opinion, and again, I'm a guest speaker, so you can hate me, don't hate Randy, okay, all right, (laughs) right? Two views where justice is misappropriated. The first one is this, when justice is not connected to God's righteousness, it becomes weaponized as revenge. Oh, we live in a world that loves revenge. I'm going to find something from you on Twitter. I'm going to find something from you on Instagram. I'm going to dig up your past, no matter what you've put ahead of yourself or how Christ has redeemed you. I'm going to dig it up. I'm going to churn it. I'm going to burn you. I'm going to burn you to the ground. We live in a culture that loves to weaponize and revenge on our pasts. I'm going to be honest. Some of my favorite movies are movies of revenge. Anybody with me? Yeah. Go home today, okay, all right, I can say that as a follower of Jesus, I'm not going to prop these movies up, but I'm going to tell you, you know, the revenge movies. You go home and Google revenge movies, and you're going to find a lot. There's a classic, Gladiator. Oh, yeah, see, you're feeling, you're feeling me. Russell Crowe, Maximus, you got to say it that way, Maximus, right? His favorite emperor, which is like his father, was murdered by his son, the emperor-to-be. He kills his family leaves him for dead, takes away his position in the army. Maximus spends an entire movie working his way up through the ranks into the Colosseum. And one day he gets to see his nemesis, his enemy in the Colosseum. They have a fight and he kills him. Revenge. It's a sweet movie. I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to say that in church, right? 
Denzel, any Denzel lovers? Denzel, all right? Equalizer one, two, and three, right? Finds a young woman that's been messed over by the Russian mob and he takes at least one, two, or three different versions of movies and he wipes them out and he gets, oh man, I wish I had the skills of Denzel, you know? I, I know it's not what he does, but he's so good at it. Keanu Reeves right now, right? Couldn't, that guy couldn't act years ago, couldn't speak. Now John Wick, one, two, three, and four. Again, I'm just saying this. Someone takes his car. Someone kills the dog that his wife gave him. And he gets revenge. Now, they make great movies. I cheer for the, the people in those movies. And actually, when I see true stories where someone has avenged someone else, there's something inside of me that loves that. And I can tell from some of you in here, you're interacting, you love it too. But we realize in the real world that as followers of Jesus, that is incongruent with the plan of God. That when it comes to justice, as followers of Jesus and as churches, we're not called to weaponize justice. We're not called to be vindictive. The rest of the world has that nailed down. We're called to be followers of Jesus. And it's not revenge. It's not vindictiveness. And I don't see that a lot in Christians. And okay, maybe it's the world that I live in. But the second one is where I see more Christians and churches gravitating towards when it comes to justice. It's not, it's not revenge, but it's the second one. All right? And the second one is this. When justice is not connected to God's righteousness, it becomes weakened as a platitude. And sometimes we as Christians and churches are great at platitudes. We see something broke in the world and we preach about it, which we're supposed to, but it ends there. A platitude is this. A platitude is often a position without action. That's where I started today. Arita. A platitude is when we see something that needs to be fixed in an injustice in the world, but there is a little personal action behind it. We point to them to do it. A platitude is when we see something that breaks the heart of God. And by our actions, our money, our time, and our priorities, we say, not me, ahorita. A platitude a self-righteousness. You do it. You know what can be a platitude? A platitude looks like this. A platitude can be a post on social media. I love social media. Okay. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, a few of the others. I like to watch TikTok. I know that sounds weird, but there's a lot of really good videos on there. I, I, I do social media to communicate the gospel. I think it's a great medium. We should use all medium. I catch up with my friends, my family. I get to stalk some friends of mine every now and then to see what's going on. A legacy for my children, a digital legacy, right? But social media has become a place where we postulate and get grandiose about the brokenness of the world. And we can throw down a verse and we can throw down a website and we can blog about something. Nothing wrong with that. But then it stops there. And we declare the injustices in the world, that the people that are marginalized in the world, and we post and we post and we post and we post, and we think we're right, and you may be right, but that's where it ends. And all that is, is a platitude. Come on, listen to me. People that are hungry don't need our platitudes. A post typically doesn't feed a hungry person. Again, hear my heart on this. I'm not trying to say you can't use it, but we got to be more than platitudes. 
uh, don't kill me, but a prayer can be a platitude. Certainly, Jesus calls us as followers of his to have an ongoing relationship, to communicate. That's prayer. Where two or three are gathered, God is there. He is in their midst. When, when we are struggling, we get two or three together and we are to confess our sins to one another. Prayer is all over scripture. Jesus demonstrated he went away and did it. He shows us to do it. We need to pray when we make big decisions. We need to pray for discernment. We need to pray about our marriages. We need to pray in how we lead our kids. We need to pray about how to be salt and light in our business communities. And maybe you need to pray about some discernment in the area of serving the marginalized, but you don't need to pray about the calling of serving the marginalized. The calling's there. And sometimes we just say, well, it's just pastor, you know, Mr. Pastor, I, I got to pray about it. I just got to talk to Jesus. No, you don't. The calling's there. The calling of every follower of Jesus. No excuses. Sometimes that just becomes a platitude to just not do anything. Do you hear me? Okay, this is not condemnation. This is not condescending. This is just, I live in that world. God desires more of us and from us as followers of his. I'm going to give you a personal story where I dropped the ball. Um, we had Geico insurance for a long time. I have six drivers in my house. Can you imagine what that bill was like? Yeah, 16, 19, 19, and 23. Yeah. And in a period of about 14 months, three of my children got into car accidents that were not their faults. First accident, my son was coming home, Aaron, he's going to be 23 this year, was coming home from homecoming. He was rear-ended at a stoplight at 1230 at night. Happy homecoming. Uh, we bought another car to replace that car. My second son, Aaron, or Christian, which is now 19, was driving that in broad daylight. It was rear-ended at a stoplight in front of a fire station because the young woman had just gotten her license and was texting. And a few months after, I bought a car to replace that car, and my daughter was picking up my youngest daughter at a football game at 1030 at night, a guy ran a stoplight and totaled our third car. Three cars, three accidents, three of my children. I will not let my 16-year-old drive ever. No. <laughs> All three cars gone. And I got a letter from Geico. I'm sorry to tell you that we're dropping your insurance. You suck as a customer. Well, they didn't say it that way. But even though the accidents were not our fault... All of my kids were obeying the speed limit. They were sitting still at stoplights. Someone else trashed them. We were losing our insurance. So I called Geico and got a couple of <clears throat> very unprofessional customer service agents. And I'm sorry if you work for Geico, because I'm right now getting ready to be not so nice about Geico. Sorry. And I talked to the woman on the line, and she kept saying, the, the, the party line, I'm sorry for the inconvenience. I'm sorry for the inconvenience. I'm sorry for the inconvenience. Stop saying you're sorry for the inconvenience. She stepped it over and over again, just like in this monotone voice. And I was getting very frustrated. My, my insurance company is supposed to stand with me. How can you allow this injustice? I think I use that word to, to happen. And my kids were good drivers, and they obeyed the laws. And someone else hit us, and you should stand behind us and stand beside us. And I pay my bills every month, blah, 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 blah. And at one particular point, I said, man, my daughter was injured in the last accident. She got a concussion, which was true. I'm not lying. She got a concussion, and she couldn't see, and she was in bed for several days. And in the same monotone voice, the woman on the thing says, I'm sorry for the inconvenience. I hope that your daughter gets better. But yeah. Mm, yeah, dad here. You know, he's the Jesus follower. But in the moment, he felt like not being one. Okay, I used 
all appropriate words because my kids were all sitting around me, all right, all appropriate words. But I was direct. I said, ma'am, thank you, but I don't need your words. I don't need you to say sorry for inconvenience. Are you reading that off of a paper? I said that. Are you reading that off of a paper? And I don't need you to apologize for my daughter because all it sounds to me right now, it sounds to me like you're giving me words, you're giving me a platitude. I use the word. You're giving me a platitude and I don't need a platitude. I need Geico. I need the lizard to show up to my house and provide (laughs) insurance. Come on. True. I need you to do your job. They dropped us. It didn't work. Yeah, it's not. But I was angry and I was protecting my kids and I felt like it was wrong. And it was either a few minutes, a few hours, a few days, a few weeks later. And I wrote it into this message, but I wrote it in my journal. And I thought the words that I said to the woman, what if God would say those to me? What if God has said those to you? Jake said this earlier, we're sons and daughters of the most high God. What if God addressed us by the power of the Holy Spirit and say, sons and daughters of the most high God, I'm tired of your platitudes. This is what he's saying through Isaiah. Oh, sometimes we're not much different than the people of Israel. Hey, hey, sons and daughters of the most high God, I, I have called you to meet the needs of those that are marginalized and experiencing injustice. No more platitudes, no more words, no more arita. I need action. I need skin in the game. I challenged me because God is full of grace and full of truth. God is all justice and all forgiveness. God is a perfect balance of all of that. And I would believe that for some of us in some churches in America and for some of us Jesus followers, that if we gave space for God to do that, he would say, I'm tired of the platitudes. Look at your calendar. Look at your checkbook. Look at your priorities. Where, 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 where are you serving the marginalized? Again, if you're still with me, just give me a yeah. 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 Stop with the platitudes, Jesus followers. So then Isaiah gives us a way to live this. He says what justice is. And again, this is reverberated in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He says this in verse 17. He says, defend the oppressed. Each of these verses could be a message. We won't go there. To be oppressed means to be crushed or burdened by some abuse of power or authority. As churches And followers of Jesus, when we see the abuse of authority or power of someone, we step in. What does it mean to defend the oppressed? Here's some examples. Standing in the gap. For someone who is looked down upon because their skin color doesn't match yours or their language is not the same as yours. Defending the oppressed means this. It means leveraging all that we have for someone that is struggling with the oppression of an addiction. Does somebody know someone that is? Yes, we all do. And for whatever reasons they got into it, as followers of Jesus, we are the people that lead them out or are supposed to help lead them out and point them to Jesus, the ultimate healer, or into recovery groups or into a local church with biblical communities so they can find people like them to they can overcome this addiction and this oppression. And dare I say this, okay? What about the migrant that just wants a better way of life and just wants a job and wants to have safety? 
Shouldn't we stand up in some way? And I know that's highly politicized today and jacked up all over the place, but shouldn't we do something as Jesus followers? How how about this? How about the unchurched? And maybe you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus. Uh, I hope you feel welcome in this place. But how about the people that are still not in the family of God, that are living in darkness and don't know it, they are living in oppression and don't know it, that are hopeless and don't know it, you know, I had a, a family show up at my church a few years ago, and I will keep it anonymous so I'm not hated, right? And they were looking for a new church, and they had a fallout in their old church, and they were asking me questions about our church and our DNA, and we're very much an outreach-focused church and very much about serving other people. And, and I could tell by the questions they were asking they were not going to stick around. I just know. I've been doing this for long enough, 30-some years. And eventually after the meeting, they said, thank you, Pastor. It was a great meeting. And they sent me an email a few weeks later and just said, Pastor, we're not going to come to your church. We feel like right now that your church emphasizes too much on reaching the lost and prioritizes outreach. And we just don't need that in our lives right now. What we need is someone that can feed us and sustain our family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said, see ya. <laughs> I have the gift of mercy, can't you tell? Uh, as followers of Jesus, we are called to reach those that are far from God and still not are part of the family of God. We should never, ever have to apologize for that because we were once not a part of the family of God. Amen? And Jesus redeemed us, right? And someone introduced us and someone looked out for us. Defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless. I need to start wrapping this down. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Another translation says orphan, but I would like to broaden it in the greater context of Scripture today. Stand up and defend the children of all backgrounds, families, and cultures. Practically speaking, tutor children. It's one of the things we did at our church in Florida. Tutor children at risk, particularly in the Hispanic community. It was one of the favorite things I love that we did. How about fostering a kid? How about adopting a child? You know how many children need homes? How about feeding children spiritually, feeding children physically? I'll say this as the former children's pastor of way bygone years. Children are not an afterthought in the church. They should never be an afterthought in the church. They should never be a subterranean level of ministry in the church. They are not the future church. They are the church now. They are God's creations now. They have a future and a purpose now. And whether you're a man or a woman or a grandfather, grandmother, we are called to serve children and youth. They should be a priority, not an afterthought. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Stand with those who have lost their spouse. Surround them when that significant other was with them for 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 years in their loneliness. You know what justice is? It's, it's inviting them over for dinner. That's justice. You know what justice is? It's listening to the stories of their life. That's what justice is. You know what justice is? Justice is inviting the church, serving with them in church, serving with them in the community. What other, other than this thing you can do with them, that is justice in the life of a widow. I, uh, for whatever reason, um, my wife and I, over the years, even in senior pastoring and the mission field, have had this opportunity to care for kids has kind of been our thing. And Jake and I were joking earlier. I said, isn't it weird that 
I was your children's pastor and now you're up here and it's just it's like, wow, that's, that's odd, but it's cool. And God has given us this ability just to care for kids over the years and point kids to Jesus. And that's feeding hungry kids on the mission field. And I've adopted four children uh, from Guatemala when they were all babies and blah, 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 and all kinds of things. And uh, we met this organization, this nonprofit. And this is, I'm just sharing this story because I want you to know that this is doable. I met this nonprofit in Florida where we're pastoring called uh, Better Together. And it's not social services and it's not adoption. It's kind of in the middle. And the idea is that when mom and dad are in crisis and they have children, someone, a host family, takes care of the children until mom and dad get a job or mom and dad get out of rehab or mom gets out of the hospital. And over about a 14-month period, I didn't share this in the first service, we had about 17 or 18 kids in our house um, over that period, either for a 24-hour period all the way up to a 90-day period. And sometimes you wonder the impact you're making. Let's just be honest. And then we were introduced to this one... um, uh, immigrant family. Uh, they had migrated here from Guatemala, such a precious family. And they called us and said, hey, we have a mom here who just gave birth to a preemie and she's barely five pounds and we need a host family. She doesn't speak any English. Mom doesn't. Would you guys take the baby in for the next 90 days and actually help care for mom? And we said, yes. And I got a picture here of our family of my four adoptive children uh, a couple of years ago. And the little peanut in the middle is Yarley. So she was five and a half pounds when we picked her up at the NICU. Uh, she was tiny. I mean, she had bottles that were like this size, like those baby bottles, toy baby bottles. And we brought her home. And for the next 90 days, our family loved on her. I mean, like crazy. We put diapers on her and fed her and remembered how horrible it is to not sleep during the night. And our family just surrounded Yardley. And at the end of 90 days, we had to give her back to mom and we were heartbroken. But here's a really cool thing. And it isn't, this doesn't always happen. So I'm just telling you the best case story. When we gave Yardley back to her mom, Heidi, Heidi wanted us to continue to be a part of Yardley's life. And so we rallied our church around Heidi and we got washers and dryers and couches and beds and gave it to the family for free. We bought food and we brought it in and we gave it to her so she could have it. We, for weeks, for months, my wife, Kisa, there in the middle would pick up Heidi and take her and Yarley to the doctor's office because uh, Heidi could not speak English and she would translate and talk about vaccinations and rashes and changing diapers and feeding and just has adopted this young mom kind of as her own child as well. I got another picture of here of me and Yarley. She's a little bit older with a cheesy grin. And then one more we want to show you, because even though she's not a part of our family, she's family, right? And this last one is when she was one years old, and we got together, her family and ours, and celebrated her first birthday. And she just turned two this past February, and she got two birthday parties. Her family came to our house, and we did one. And then we went to her family's house, and we did one. She got two parties. And here's the cool thing. When I fly home tonight at 1030, uh, that little peanut will be at our house for the next few days where we get to just kind of spoil her again, right? Again, we're not perfect. Lots of other stories that did not work out. Lots of other times where we've lost our money and maybe lost our minds. But that's what God calls us to. And if we can do that in our brokenness and our flawedness as a family, you can. It's the calling of Jesus, of this church, I know that. I know the DNA of this church. But it's the calling of every follower of Jesus. So I want to give you that statement again. 
And then two questions to think about. Is a follower of Jesus righteous behavior, righteousness, holiness, what I think, what I believe is important, and the right treatment of others? And when those two are separated, it's either revenge or platitudes, and God doesn't want either from us. So here's two questions. What is one area of injustice in this world that breaks your heart? I want you to write it down. Uh, Maybe these notes will be online, but I want you to write it down. What is one thing in this world that breaks your heart? And maybe that's seared into your mind right now. What is it that causes you to get angry? That is not right. What causes you to weep? That is not right. When you watch the news or you're on the internet or you're scrolling on Instagram and you see something that breaks your heart, what is it? Make notation of it. Because maybe God is doing something to call you to it. Second, what is the one thing that you can do right now? One thing. One thing with your time, your money, or your energy. Not tomorrow, not in three weeks, not I got to pray about it. What is one thing that God is calling you to do to alleviate that injustice in this world? Because God uses followers of Jesus. He's calling you today to meet the needs of the marginalized. One thing. Father God, I I thank you for this opportunity today to be in this space, in this place. God, I pray that you continue to revolutionize revolutionize our lives, our culture, through Christians, through churches. God, I pray today that we feel the weight of this. I feel the weight of this. I live in this, God. And I pray, Father, today that we feel the brutality of this world, the the wickedness of this world, the injustice of this world. And instead of pointing figures at other people, God, that we begin to ask the question, God, would you just break my heart? God, would you break my heart? God, would the things that break your heart, would you break mine? God, would you begin to do that in this place today for every single one of us? And I know that's unique as we are uniquely created by you. And maybe that is adoption or maybe that is fostering. Maybe that is feeding hungry kids. Maybe that is serving in children's ministries. Maybe that is tutoring kids. It could be youth ministry in this church. God, just speak. What is it that breaks us that we see that we can be a part of the solution to? And God, would you challenge and remind and convict and speak that we are not to be people of revenge or self-righteous platitudes, but action. Would you challenge us to be action-oriented in the name of Jesus? Father, we give this moment and this time to you today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There's been a history in this church of community and relationship and connectivity that goes back literally decades. It was Steve Gill and Rick Camiso and myself at that time, 20 and 30-somethings, that launched really Rock Point uh, decades back. And there's a direct line between them and Brenda Dady and Kent Chevalier and Rob Marcus to Jake and Mickey and Jeff and others that are in this congregation. We didn't discuss anything. Steve asked me, he says, is there anything I should, I said, whatever, you know, I trust you, whatever God's directing you to do. Steve has literally no idea how timely this communication is today. So I'm going to give you a few things to hang your hat on. We're involved with Costa Rica. We have a medical team going out, uh, 14 of our people in the fall. 
too late for you to be a part of that team, but you can pray for that team. And there's probably going to be some medical issues and some finances that may be needed as well, too. Osborne, we've been involved in this community for the last seven, eight years, and we're ramping up our efforts again now post-COVID. And Erica can use anyone who'll step into that and be a part of things there. We have this thing called homecoming coming up, which is our fall launch, but increasingly we've done feeling led over the last couple of weeks and months to really make this an evangelist and outreach time, an open house time. You have a card. Pray over that. Give to somebody. And maybe in three weeks' time when we gather, maybe you park in the back lot and leave the front lot for those who are going to be coming in a little bit later or need a little less uh, thing that would block them from coming. But take the card. Do something with it. Tomorrow night, Waypoint, we're going to gather for one hour. One hour to have an understanding and be equipped so that you'll know where we're going and can understand the strategies and be a part of that. Join us for that. But the majority of what is being shared here, I think, is very personalized. God is showing you specific areas that you can reach out and encourage others. So join us tonight, tomorrow night. Join us in three weeks with somebody. Uh, be a part of different ministries, but listen to what God's saying to you. Meanwhile, I appreciate Steve taking the time out of what's a very busy schedule to come and hang with us for this time period, and we want to lift him and Kisa and the whole team up in prayer. We've got some good-looking kids. Nothing to do with him at all. He just adopted them. <laughs> but they're good-looking kids. <laughs> But I have a deep affection for this man and deep appreciation for his character and the ways that he shaped this church in times past and we continue to partner. There'll be those available up front here if you'd like to have someone to pray with you afterwards, but let's close this time uh, in prayer. Father, we lift up to you right now Steve and Kisa and the four kids, Lord God, right now that you'd encourage and strengthen them as they are now stepping back into ministry in Costa Rica. Lord, we pray for their partners there, partners of ours as well, Miguel and Karina, and their children, Lord, as they continue to minister in what is their own country of Costa Rica. I pray for this medical team that goes out in a few weeks' time, just a month or so of time or two. And Father, that you would speak to us and guide us as a church. There's something you're stirring in us in the midst of what is a very adverse time in this country. Show us your vision, Lord, for this church and for us as individuals. We commit these things even as we commit Steve and Kisa and the kids into your hands. And in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And the church said, amen.